We are very eager to begin worshiping again in person on Sunday mornings here in this room, in the venue, maybe other places in the church. It was interesting this past week, I sort of randomly read these two short books in the, toward the end of the New Testament, 2nd and 3rd John. And at the end of each of those letters, John said something to the effect of, I have plenty more I would like to write you, but I prefer not to write with pen and ink. I long to see you soon so that we may talk face to face. And I read that, I'm like, yes, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. There's no substitute for face-to-face communication. And that's true of our Sunday worship. It's also true of the conversations that happen before and after worship on Sundays. And so it is our desire to begin meeting again as soon as we can do so, number one, safely, and number two, when we can do so in a way that's actually worshipful and not completely odd and, and weird. And so, as you might guess, the larger the church, the more complex it is to begin meeting again in this context. But I want to let you know that that we are paying very close attention to the guidelines that Governor Kelly has given in her plan to reopen Kansas. We're paying very close attention to the guidelines from our local authorities. As well, we are in conversation with other churches here in Manhattan and other e-free churches around the country that are about our size. We hope to learn from their planning, from their experiences, both the things that they find are working and the things that are not working. Uh, As well, we're consulting with a number of physicians that are here at Faith, getting their insight, their wisdom on when to, to begin meeting again and the safety precautions that we might need to take. And so a lot of things are in the works. Uh, The main thing I want to communicate this morning is that we will begin meeting no earlier than phase three of Governor Kelly's plan to reopen Kansas. And as you know, if you've been watching and paying attention, that the, the dates for those phases can change depending on a lot of different factors. But we will begin worshiping no earlier than phase three. Uh, We're talking about precautions and guidelines that we will follow once we do begin meeting again, and we will communicate those well ahead of time before we begin meeting. So there's a lot we don't know, uh, but what we do know is that God is very eager to lead his people. I have no doubt that God will lead us during this season. So thank you for your prayers, for your encouragement, and for your patience during this time. Many years ago, John Stott wrote this. He wrote, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend when it comes to walking with Christ. That statement is based on many scriptures, such as the one we looked at last week in James 4, 6, where James said, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. Since the primary relationship in our lives is our relationship with God, and since God opposes, he blocks, he frustrates those who walk in pride, then there's a sense in which pride really is our greatest enemy. 
Uh, therefore, we would be very smart to notice and renounce pride anytime we find it surfacing in our lives. And since God gives grace, he gives help, he, he showers down his favor on those who walk in humility. And then there's a sense in which humility is our greatest friend when it comes to walking with Christ. We should therefore cultivate humility in a very intentional way. Last week, we saw how James applied this perspective about pride and humility uh, to the issue of church unity. And our conclusion from James 4, verses 1 through 6, is that our only hope for genuine unity is to walk in humility so that God lavishes his grace upon us. And so when it comes to unity, our hope is not in our giftedness, it's not in our strategic planning, it's not in our knowledge of the Bible, it's not in our personalities. Our only hope is the grace of God. Therefore, it's essential that we walk in humility before God so that he showers his grace down upon us. In verses 7 through 12, which is our passage today in James 4, James tells us how to walk in humility and therefore how we pursue unity. And I have to warn you, James is going to give us a series of rapid-fire commandments, uh, commands, things that, that decisions we need to make about different aspects of humility and, and avoiding pride. And I hope we don't get lost in all the details. I'm going to try to, to show how interconnected all of these commands are and how each of these commands will, will help us cultivate a genuine, growing humility. And ultimately, I hope to show that walking in humility is essential. It's not icing on the cake. It is absolutely essential for our mission of making disciples. And so we look at verses, verses 7 through 12 of James 4, this pattern of humility, and therefore a pattern of how we pursue unity in the church. <clears throat> we see in verse 7 that since God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, <clears throat> James tells us, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. To submit to God means to recognize his place of rightful authority in our lives. And so instead of ignoring God, instead of rejecting God's will, uh, we say to God, God, I want your will to be done in my life. I'm not my own boss. You are my Lord. Therefore, I want to see your will done in my life. I want to pause and ask you a question and, and just in your heart, answer this honestly. When was the last time you expressed that to God? When was the last time you said, God, I am yours. I've been bought with a price. I don't live for myself. I submit to you. Mind, heart, soul, everything, I submit to you. We're going to be talking about in the rest of this passage our details on how we actually submit to God, how we adopt this stance of humility before God so that he refines us and makes us the kind of people that can walk in unity. And the first way we do it, we see it there in, in uh, verse 7, is we submit to God by resisting the devil, knowing that if we do, he will flee from us. And the word, the, the title devil gets thrown around a lot, but in the Bible, the devil is a powerful, uh, intelligent, spiritual being. 
And scriptures such as Isaiah 14 and, and Ezekiel 28 explain how his pride and his arrogance are what prompted him to rebel against God. God had a family in heaven before he started his family on earth. And in the heavenly realm, uh, the devil, Satan, and other spiritual beings rebelled against God. And Satan's mission now is to convince as many humans as possible to do the same thing. Instead of submitting to God, the, the devil wants us to rebel against God. Uh, such as in the garden, he challenged God's word. He says, is God really, is God really said, you will not die? No, actually, if you eat that fruit, you'll become like him. You'll become wiser. It's to your advantage to eat the fruit. And so we resist the devil. Uh, when we resist the devil, we're siding with God and we're saying, I don't want to imitate the pride. I don't want to imitate the rebellion of the devil. And the promise is that when we do, he will flee from us. In other words, his power over us is broken. And it's important to understand this in the context of the larger passage and a larger process of discipleship. And so it's, it's only as we submit to God and we walk in humility as described in the rest of the passage that we can resist the devil and find that he flees from us. But when we do live this larger life of discipleship, this life of, of humility, that's what we find. Uh, the greatest example of this is Jesus in the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days. And toward the end of it, Satan came to him. The devil came to him and tempted him. But Jesus resisted. And in Matthew 4, we're told that after being tempted, after being going without food for 40 days, that the devil left him. And that's the experience of all who resist him and walk in humility. None of us do it perfectly in this life. But that's the promise. That's the vision. The first half of verse 8 gives the obverse of the second half of verse 7. In other words, the opposite. On the one hand, if you resist the devil, you move away from the devil, he will flee from you. The verse 8 tells us if you draw near to God, if you come toward him, he will draw near to you. And this is one of the most beautiful things in this passage as, I, as I've studied it. James uses the same verb to describe our drawing near to God and his drawing near to us. And the word simply means that we approach God. And the reason we can approach God is because, are you ready? He is approachable. And the reason he is approachable is because of the death, resurrection, and enthronement of Jesus Christ. We simply come to God, we come directly to him because we have that access in Jesus Christ. And I should, should probably mention here that drawing near to God isn't primarily an emotional experience. In other words, the goal isn't to feel near to God. That's often a byproduct of drawing near to God. But drawing near to God mean, means actually approaching him coming his direction in the things we think, in the things we say, and in the things we do. So you could take virtually any command, and if you seek to obey that command, you will be drawing near to God. If we look at an example from James, back in James 1.27, there we read that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to visit widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so in that culture, widows and orphans would have represented the most vulnerable, would have represented the least of these. And so one way that we can 
move toward God, draw near to God, is by cultivating his heart for the least of these in our community. We can, we can invest the time and the energy uh, to let God break our heart for the most vulnerable in our community. And it does require effort. It, it will take time. It, it will cost you something. But when you do, you will have the mind of Christ and you will have the heart of God and you will naturally, you will be compelled to reach out in compassion. Uh, you will want to mentor a kid who needs a stable adult in his or her life. And if you want details on how to do that, email me, see me. I will talk endlessly about how you might do that. Uh, you will want to feed the hungry. We have an ongoing effort to, to provide a lunch once a, once a week. In some ways, it's a small thing, but we're partnering with another church that has this ongoing effort to feed the hungry in our community. You can befriend an international student who's come to this culture and needs, needs someone to, uh, to be a friend, to show them, them around. So if we have the mind of Christ and the heart of God toward the least of these, we draw near to God and he will use us and we'll experience him in new and deeper ways. And the response, James says, is if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. And the greatest example of this that I, I can, can really find in Scripture is in the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, you, know the, you probably know the, the story. The younger brother had taken his share of the inheritance. And uh, basically he was saying to the father, I wish you were dead so I could have my money. The father gave him the money. He went to a, a far-off land, and there he squandered it on loose living. He finally came to his senses, and we're told that, that when he was, he was coming back home, he was still a, a long way off, that the father saw him. The idea is that the father was out in front of the house. He was looking for the son. It says he felt compassion for him, and it says he ran toward him. And so this is what God does. When we draw near, he runs toward us. And the father embraced him and kissed him, and they celebrated. He was welcomed back into fellowship. And the point of that, fellow, that, that parable, Jesus was saying, if you draw near to God, he will run to you. He will welcome you back into full fellowship. And James is telling us in this passage, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. We will experience him. We will, we will live in his household as sons and daughters. And we'll experience him as a good heavenly father, as a great heavenly father. We'll experience his discipline. We'll experience his training, his protection, his provision. We will experience God as he, as he longs to be experienced. And so if, imagine what the church would be like if every single one of us, not just a few outliers, but every single one of us would draw near to God and experience him drawing near to us, the type of unity that we would have because of our common nearness to God himself. In the second half of verse 8, James gives yet another aspect of submitting to God, and he uses categories found in the Old Testament. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so James is urging us to repent from sin, from double-mindedness in a very decisive way. Of course, there's a sense in which God has already accomplished this through, through Jesus uh, because uh, when we enter into the new covenant, we are cleansed, our hearts are, pured, we're given, are, are purified, we're given a new heart 
uh, by Christ. The Spirit dwells within us. But James is talking in this verse about the ongoing need for us to deal with specific sins and double-mindedness when they surface in our lives. And so cleansing our hands, if we've learned anything in, in the age of COVID, we've learned to cleanse our hands, right? And so the image there is that when we cleanse our hands, we confess our sins to God and we renounce those sins and we live a different way. And just like we learned to wash our hands, after you wash your hands, you don't just wash for 30 seconds with hot water and soap and then grab a germy door handle, right? Doorknob, right? No, you, you seek to keep your hands clean. And that's the idea here. Uh, it's a good picture of how we deal with sin in our lives. James also mentions purify your hearts, you double-minded. Pure is the opposite of contaminated. And so to have a pure heart means single-mindedly devoted to God. In Psalm 86.11, David prayed this, this wonderful line. He said to God, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. David knew the freedom of not having a divided heart, of not having a, a, a double-mindedness where you maybe worship God on Sundays and Wednesday nights, but the rest of the time your heart is worshiping other things, chasing after other things. And so unite my heart to fear you. And so when we purify our hearts, again, it's based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, based on the fact that we're born again, but we repent of our desires and attitudes and ambitions that are misaligned with God's. In verse 9, James employs more Old Testament terminology, urging us to lament our sinful pride and the fallout that we, we experienced experience in relationships. And so how does this verse sound to you? James says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And James is, is echoing the Old Testament prophets and Jesus when he speaks about misery and gloom and mourning and weeping. And if you're not familiar with this and don't understand the, the role that this can play in our lives, you might be asking the question, wait a minute. Are you saying we're not supposed to have joy? I thought we were supposed to rejoice in the Lord always. What's with this weeping and, and mourning and, uh, and lamenting? Well, we are told over and over, cultivate joy, rejoice in the Lord always. And so this obviously isn't an absolute prohibition against laughter and joy. It's a call, however, to mourn and lament over our sin and its consequences. And such lament, such mourning is a great asset because it prepares our hearts uh, for, for genuine repentance and it can be a prelude to true and lasting joy. And I would caution you, if you enter into this, this time of lamenting and mourning over your sin, you need to pay very close attention to the Holy Spirit because if the Holy Spirit leads you in this process, it won't lead to self-condemnation and self-loathing. It won't lead to this sense of worthlessness. No, it will lead you in a very different direction. The Spirit will lead us to lament as an expression of repentance, of actually changing. The goal isn't just to feel bad, but the, the, the goal is, is true repentance so that we might actually live differently. 
And so here again, I pause and I ask you the question, when was the last time you lamented so deeply over your sin, not somebody else's, over your sin that you wept over your sin? I fear that too often we don't slow down, we don't sit in the presence of God long enough to feel his heart, his, his sorrow over our sin. And again, this is not an unhealthy thing. This is, a, this is a deep fellowship with God where we allow him to show us how he feels about our sin, the grief that he has over the fallout over our sin. And depending on the nature of the sin and how deeply entrenched it is, we might need a season of lamenting, a season of weeping, if we want to experience genuine repentance, the type that will lead to genuine humility and therefore genuine unity in the body of Christ. And so sometimes we need more than a quick confession. We need to sit in God's presence and feel his sorrow over our sin. And the goal is the type of repentance that Paul described in 2 Corinthians 7, a repentance without regret. In other words, a repentance from which we don't repent. We don't change back to the way it was. It's this permanent movement toward God and his ways. I hope you're doing okay. We've got a lot of commands coming at you. In verse 10, we have this inclusio, or it's like a bookend with, with verse 6. In verse 6, James writes that God gives grace to the humble. In verse 10 here, he returns to that thought and he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And we humble by doing all the things that he's just described, by submitting to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, cleansing hearts, purify, or cleansing hands, purifying hearts, weeping with repentance over our sins. In these ways, we humble ourselves before God. And the promise is that if you do, he will exalt you. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is a reality that's taught throughout Scripture. Uh, you find it in the Old Testament. Uh, you find it in, in Luke 18. Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he summed it up by saying this, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That was the Pharisee. But he who humbles himself, like the, like the tax collector did, will be exalted. And of course, this is Jesus' experience. It's in, it's in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that because he did, God highly exalted him. He exalted him to the right hand of God, far above all names, every name that is named, that at the, knee, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. And as with Jesus' experience, this usually doesn't happen in our lifetime during this life. But in the next life, the last will be first. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so that's the pattern, the pattern of humility and being exalted by God. But before he, he leaves this, this uh, issue of humility in verses 11 and 12, he returns again to the dangers of the tongue. He can't stop mentioning 
how destructive the tongue can be. Apparently, he does so here because slander and judgmental speech are such a destructive form of pride. It's the polar opposite of the humility that James has been urging upon us. Here's what he says. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Remember, we're to be doers of the word. Here he says, if you judge other people, you are a judge of the law. Why? Because there is only one lawgiver and judge, and the one who is a, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James says a lot there, but if I would summarize it, I would say James is saying there is only one judge, and it is not you and it is not me. God is the judge. Uh, He doesn't delegate that function to anybody, and so we're arrogant when we speak against and judge each other. It's not our responsibility, first of all, and secondly, we are not qualified. You and I don't know the motives of other people's hearts. We simply aren't qualified to judge. And so James says, do not do it. Stop judging, stop speaking against one another. And he's not implying, of course, that we never confront offenses, we never confront sins in the lives of others. In several places, we're told to help other people navigate a way out of their sin. We'll see it in the last two verses in the book of James. Uh, But we're consistently told that before we can help other people with their sin, we have to deal with the sin in our own lives. If we don't do that, there is approximately a 0% chance that they will receive what we're offering to them. For example, in Matthew 7, uh, people say this is, this is the most well-known verse in the Bible. It used to be John 3.16. Now it's, 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 it's probably Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Judgmental people will be judged harshly. That doesn't mean that we don't care about Other people's deficiencies and sins, it doesn't mean that we ignore them. But here's the pattern that Jesus teaches. This is Matthew 7, 5. You've already been called sinners and double-minded. Here he says, you hypocrite. (laughs) First take the log out of your own eye. A log is really big. And then you will see clearly to take the speck, which is really small, out of your brother's eye. And so that's the pattern. We deal with our own sin, then we can come in humility with the proper motives to help other people with their issues, their sins. When I was in seminary, I had a professor that that challenged us. He said, if you are ever teaching and you are going to critique somebody else's position, in other words, you're going to disagree publicly with another person, you need to do so in such a way that if that, so that, that you imagine that person sitting on the front row. And when you're finished, you would turn to that person and that person would say, you were fair. What you said about my position is accurate. I'd like to suggest that that should be the standard we hold ourselves to when we talk about disagreements among ourselves. In other words, if, you're gonna, if, you're, if you have to talk about some disagreement you have with another person, person. And 99% of the time, we just don't need to go there. But if you have to go there, uh, 
Do so as if that person were standing next to you. And after you say what you have to say, that person would say, you know, that was accurate. That was fair. In other words, we need to have the type of humility where, humility where we can disagree, but we don't slander each other. We don't judge each other. We don't uh, ascribe motives that we don't even know are true. That's the type of humility James is advocating. Remember what's at stake, our unity and therefore our influence in the lives of people who need Jesus. I mentioned it last week, we saw it in John 17, that people are supposed to see a type of supernatural unity in our midst so that they conclude, first of all, that God sent Jesus, and second of all, that God loves them. It's a supernatural type of unity, therefore an extraordinary type of humility that can convince people of that. Dorothy Sayers wrote that God underwent three great humiliations in his efforts to rescue the human race. The first was the incarnation, Jesus taking on a human body, flesh and blood and all its limitations. The second was the cross. He was publicly humiliated by dying on a cross. And the third is the church. God is entrusting his reputation to ordinary people. God says, you want to know what Jesus, you want to know what I'm like? Look at Jesus. You know what Jesus is like? Look at the body of Christ. Look at the church. They are to mirror the image of Jesus Christ. They will show you what I am like. They will compel you that it's worth it to follow me no matter what the cost. And so, since unity is essential for the mission of the body of Christ, humility is essential. It's not optional. It's not icing on the cake. Humility is essential. Everybody wants to be known as, as humble, but how many of us will seek it with a whole heart? I'm going to put a slide on, on your screen there that kind of summarizes the commands we've been, been talking about today. We have a screen that, that speaks about submitting to God, how we are told to humble ourselves in the presence of God. And as you look over this list, would you invite God to highlight one, maybe two, that you really need to pursue? What would be the most strategic for you to pursue at this, this time in your life? Would you make this a, a source of seeking God? I want to pray for us and invite the Holy Spirit to pinpoint, to, to shine the light on one, maybe two of these that could become the focus of our lives during this season. Heavenly Father, we invite you to lead us. Uh, you are wise. Your spirit who dwells within us can convict us of sin, can lead us into righteousness. And so, God, what is it? What is it that you want us, you want me to focus on? Is there an area in which I need to resist the devil where I have been going his way? I've been walking in his pride instead of submitting to you. God, is there a, a sin in my life where I need to cleanse my hands? God, is there a way in which I've been double-minded? I need to purify my heart. God, are there sins over which I need to be miserable and mourn and weep 
Is this a season of lament where I, I allow myself to feel what you feel, your sorrow over my sin? God, have there been sins of the tongue? Have I spoken? Have I judged others when it's not my place? It's not my assignment. God, we invite you to pinpoint what we need, need to do. And God, will you lead us? We invite your spirit to do whatever it takes to make us a church that walks in humility and therefore in unity. God, we're desperate for this. Will you do this in our midst? In Jesus' name.